Welcome to the weekly deep dive podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here with my friend and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What is up? All right. So last week we talked uh, Doctrine and Covenants section one, but this week in our Come Follow Me, we're actually taking a little diversion away from Doctrine and Covenants to look at the first vision and Joseph Smith history, but just the first 26 verses. So in this podcast, at least this episode, we're going to look at the context of the restoration first from a, a biblical parable, then from setting the stage, kind of a, the world getting ready for the restoration. We're going to talk about the Smith family, uh, give some context that way, and then some context to what was going on in America. Talk about sacred groves and what we learned from Joseph Smith's preparation and the process itself of the first vision. So to kick us off, Nate, I really wanted to, I really wanted to look at a parable I think we're all very familiar with, but with a different perspective on it. And and the parable I'm talking about is the parable of the ten virgins. And a lot of times we think of the parable of the ten virgins as some future date when when Christ comes to his church and the wedding feast and who's going to be invited there. And we look at these these virgins of members of the church where half of the people are are prepared and ready with the, the oil in their lamps. But this time I want to look at it in a little different light as in context to before Joseph Smith's first vision. So we understand the groom to be Christ. And, and we talk about Christ coming as, as, as the groom. But I don't think we talk a lot about the bride. And we look at the Old Testament and you have, you know, your favorite book, Song of Solomon. My favorite book. <laughs> that and the cubits, baby. There we go. They, th- th- this whole idea of this, this intimate relationship between Christ as his church, it, it plays out in several different places. We don't just see it there. We see it in the book of Hosea, this idea of, of the Lord and the church being a wife. And when she goes to apostasy, an unfaithful wife, versus when the Lord is going to redeem and the restoration, bring her back and marry her again. We have Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul's talking about a marriage and how a man should love his wife and be willing to to give his life to her just as Christ loved the church and gave his life to the church to protect her. And it describes that intimate relationship between man and wife. And 2 Corinthians 11, we also see a little bit about this. But you know, to sum it up, the point of it is the church is, is Christ's wife and he is the groom. And they're going to get married. And at this point of time in the restoration, they, they've, they've been estranged. The church has fallen away from Christ. They haven't been worshiping Christ. You, you know, you read about this in the book of Hosea. It, it's been prophesied. We talk about the time when, when the church has, has strayed from the ordinances. They haven't kept his commandments. They've changed the doctrine. And now when the church is ready to be married to Christ, it's the restoration of the gospel when Christ is going to reunify this church. So we talk about the virgins now, and I think the virgins, all of Christianity, this idea of a virgin is someone who's only faithful to to one person. They're not, they're not cheating on them. They're not uh, adulterating themselves with other people. And I think Christianity at this time, they're worshiping one God. They're worshiping Christ. They're worshiping Jesus as their Savior. They're virgins. But not all virgins 
are, are prepared for a restoration, are looking for a restoration, or have this oil in the lamp, the spirit that's guiding them. So this is a little bit of the context I want to provide as we dive into this discussion. And as one of those people who had oil in his lamp, to give you an example, I wanted to talk about Isaac Newton a little bit. What people might not have realized about Isaac Newton is he wrote twice as much on religious and scriptural topics as he did math and science. And if you're not aware, I mean, we're talking about Isaac Newton, the guy that invented calculus, the guy that that defined the laws of motion, he defined gravity, he he was uh, possibly the, the, the father of modern physics. This guy was brilliant, right? And he lived shortly before Joseph Smith, but the, the guy, what focused him, what helped him, when he was a young boy, he went to, they had like these fairs, these big events, and all sorts of things were on sale, all, all sorts of people got together, and there was always this tent, right, this, this peep show, and and he happened to got a peep at a peep show at a, as a young boy, and he realized that this would be a temptation for him, and that he had to be very careful about that. That this was something that he might end up wasting his life on, and to get his mind off it, and to try to focus himself and dedicate himself to to other pursuits to stay morally straight, he bought a math book <laughs> at the fair. I know that's your favorite thing, Nate. Yeah, Songs of Solomon and math, <laughs> math right up your alley, right? So he bought this math book and he thought if he kept his mind occupied on, on trying to understand God, how understand God's creation, understand what governs the universe and the world, and, and math would be a way for him to appreciate the creator, it would keep his mind out of the gutter, so to speak, and, and keep him focused on a good path. So he bought this math book, he read it, he didn't understand any of it, so he had to go buy a second math book to teach himself enough math to be able to understand the first math book he bought. And, and he really kind of dedicated himself in trying to learn and understand as much as he can. And he kind of, as he learned and discovered more and he wrote more and more and more, he realized that the church had really kind of strayed from what he thought it should be. And he described it as, the the Lord has always had times where he's called prophets. He's taught the people through the prophets or dispensed truth for them, these dispensations. And the people come to a point where they reject the prophets and they fall away to this time of apostasy. And the Lord once again calls a new prophet in a, in a restoration and brings the truth back to the earth and dispenses it again through revelation and guides guides the people that are willing to listen through a prophet. He said, it's the oldest religion in the earth. This is the pattern. The Lord, and he walked through the whole history. The Lord's called Adam and Noah and Abraham all the way down to Christ. And he says, and now we've reached the time of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles have strayed from the covenant. They've broken the path. They've all gone astray. And so it is a wonder to me why the rest of the Christian world isn't looking for a prophet today to restore the church. And when he restores the church, it won't be a new religion. It'll be the oldest religion on earth, the same religion that's existed from all time. And that's what Isaac Newton was looking for. And in my book, this is a guy who had oil in his lamp. He, he had focused his life in trying to learn as much as he can, understand as much as he can, not just about a religious topic, but really broad, understand all of God's creation, how math worked, how science worked, how, how the religion played into it, the Bible, the study, just understand as much as he could and give credit to God as the source of all light, that is the more he learned, the more he understood, the more prepared he would be to, 
to come closer to God and understand and appreciate his creation and how he works. And that understanding brought him to expect and wait for a prophet to be called. So I, so I go to that parable of these virgins. I think there's a lot of people that were ready for the restoration of the gospel. I think there was a lot of people that were really looking for truth. And when it came, it, it sounded right and they were ready to join. And, and their eyes were open for when the groom came back and restored the, the church here on earth. So with that context there, kind of out of the way, I want to I want to bring it in a little bit more closely, focus in a little bit more narrowly, <laughs> narrowly, <laughs> narrowly. I mean, narrowly is cool too. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I just want to take the focus and I don't know, maybe a different word would be uh, zoom in on the Smith family itself and give us some context to the setting before Joseph Smith received his revelation. Okay. All right. So. Joseph Smith Sr. was actually a fairly prosperous guy. He, he did pretty well for himself. Um, Lucy came from actually a, a pretty depressing setting. She was in a bad place. Uh, her sisters caught tub, uh, tubular, tubular chlorosis. <laughs> Help me out, Nate. This is working well. Tubular, <laughs> tubular chlorosis. Y'all. Save me, Nate. Save I don't me. know. <laughs> Tuberculosis? Tuberculosis. Thank you. Thank you. I was waiting for that life preserver. No, I got you. I I was drowning in that sea. Anyways, she had two sisters, and um, both of them died from tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. And and the crazy thing is one of them actually got, she she was on her deathbed, and all of a sudden she woke up. She was feeling great. She said, I'm better. I'm cured. And and then she died like right after that. Oh, no. Yeah, it was was crazy. And it, it left her... Uh, well, with no sisters, but also with a lot of melancholy. She she kind of slumped into a depression and it was just kind of um, lost in herself and was wondering, really wondering if there was any purpose to living still. Mm. And uh, her brother cared a lot about her, tried to bring her out and, and ended up uh, bringing her to a party where she met Joseph Smith and, and fell in love. And, and that really kind of changed things for her. But but this is going to play another role because she catches tubercl- tuber- tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. I got you. Just say the T word, and I got you. You know what? They actually called it consumption back in the time. I just call it that. Then. We just call it consumption from here. I mean, on honestly, out. there's and you know I'm some talking symbolism about symbolism <laughs> uh, in that even now with our consumerism. All right. Anyways, right. So she found this tall, handsome guy. Uh, he was very successful. And uh, she didn't have much because, uh, you know, kind of humble circumstances. Their family had been some some hardships, but her brother did very well. And uh, her brother had a business partner over, and uh, they, they were just chatting, having a conversation at their wedding. And the conversation turned to where the business partner said, you know what, whatever you give her as a present for a wedding, I'll match it. And he said, well, that sounds great. I'm, I'll give her $500. And he said, I'll match it. I'll give I'll give her another 500 So they gave her $1,000 as a wedding gift, which was... Um, a lot at that time, you know, quite a bit. And uh, she she actually held on to it because she didn't need it with uh, Joseph Smith being as prosperous as he was. The first six years of their marriage, they did very well on the farm. But things take a turn for the worse as, as we're getting ready for Joseph Smith to come onto the stage. In uh, 1802, at this time period here in the U.S. where they lived, 
uh, ginseng was all over the place. It, it grew very easily. It, it was a readily available crop. And over in China, the, the, there was a lot of fear with the plague. And ginseng was used as a pharmaceutical to help with the plague. And there was a high demand for the ginseng. Uh, so Joseph Smith, being a, a prosperous guy, being an intelligent guy, decided to start a mercantile to collect a bunch of ginseng and sell it to the Chinese. And he'd gathered this huge crop, invested a lot of his money into this deal. And his partner, he he went to sell it to, his partner said he'd give him $3,000 for the crop. And and Joseph Smith said that this was, and, and we're talking about Joseph Smith Sr., he said this was about two-thirds the value of what it was, or less than two-thirds the value. He said he, he could do a lot better for himself if he were to sell the crop uh, directly to the Chinese and, and not work through the middleman in this case. So Joseph Smith made a trip to New York uh, talked to a captain of the boat to go sell the crop for him, act as his agent, and bring back the money for him, and, and he'd divide some of the profits with him. Well, the, this previous partner that he had talked to that wanted to buy it on the cheap spent some time and energy to find out who the captain of the boat was and what boat was selling with uh, Joseph Smith's crop. And as he got on the boat and talked to the captain, he had his own ginseng crop that he wanted to sell, and he told him that he would be in charge of uh, selling Joseph Smith's crop as well. So he he boarded the boat, went over to China, and sold all the ginseng, came back. He made a, a large profit. He, he was kind of bragging about the profit to Lucy's brother, not knowing that who, who he was, about how much money he had made. He had a chest full of silver and gold. It made a pretty good profit. But he came back to Joseph Smith Sr., and told him that the the cell was a bust, that all he got was a chest full of tea. So he gave Joseph Smith Sr. just just a couple, you know, bags of tea for his efforts. And and that ruined Joseph Smith Sr. He he had to sell his farm. He, he'd accrued about $1,800 of debt going into this venture and starting the mercantile. And he needed to to bail himself out with a $1,000 dowry that his wife had, had raised. So this this was the start of their troubles from from being successful from being prosperous from you know always having what he needed to now all of a sudden he's scraping to get by he sold everything that he had now he's going to to start being a farmer again but working on other people's property to try to pay the rent for the the, the lease on the farm that he's living on and to make matters worse it it, it really just goes downhill from here 1816 was the year without a summer a volcano in Southeast Asia erupted, put so much ash and dust and volcanic debris into the air that it, it blocked out the sun, dropped the temperatures, uh, crops froze, they had snow all the way through June, just terrible conditions to where it was a bust. He, he couldn't grow anything. And, and again, he was at a loss and, and had to sell what he had and try to make a move up to upstate New York. And, and that's where things kind of take a change for, you know, for the Smiths. You know, now you're going to have Joseph Smith. He's coming from a family of very humble circumstances. They they were once proud, prosperous, doing really well, but they've been scraping to get by and selling everything they had and just trying to make things work in, in a world that really everything's kind of turned against them. The, the, the deck is stacked against them. To make things, uh, you know, maybe one little more piece of information about Lucy Smith, the same year uh, that that they had the ginseng problems, 1802, around that same time, she contracts consumption. And remember, her sisters, both of them had died from this. Tuberculosis. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to say it. Tuberculosis. Hey! <laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. 
she she catches this and she's deathly ill um but but now she's got something to live for right and 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 she's praying to god and and she makes a covenant with him that if she she if he allows her to to live, that she'll seek his religion. They'll, she'll she'll seek him out and do her best she can to raise her children um, according to God's way. So she has this really spiritual experience. And then later on, as she's seeking this religion, and, and she's part of this this time period, this second great awakening, where she's she's trying to to find the true church. Uh, it, the story really doesn't begin with Joseph Smith, but even before him. When, when she had this experience and, and God spoke to her when she was on her deathbed and said, you, you trust in God, now trust in me. And also said, asking you shall receive, seek and it shall be given to you. And, and some of the same experience is really going to play into to Joseph Smith as he's searching and discovering, uh, trying to find the truth. And, and even later on, she was a little bit worried about her husband, Joseph Smith Sr., because he wasn't interested in organized religion. It didn't show a, he didn't want to attend church. He was a religious man, but didn't feel uh, any tendency to, 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 to attach himself to any sort of church. And she was worried about his soul, his, his sake. And so she prayed. She actually went to a grove of trees and prayed for her husband, in which the Lord assured her that he would one day join the true gospel of Jesus Christ and, and gave her some peace on that. So Joseph Smith, Jr., later on, he's not the first Smith to go to a grove of trees to pray, which is kind of interesting. And a lot of that influence in his family kind of sets the stage for the experience that he's about to have. Now, to set the stage for the time period, from 1790 to 1830, we have a second great awakening. And I just wanted to read to you guys a quote from from somebody who who lived through that time period. They said, uh, quote, the noise was like the roar of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. I counted seven ministers, all preaching at one time, some on stumps, others on wagons. Some of the people were singing, others praying, um, some crying for mercy. A peculiar, a peculiarly strange sensation came over me. My heart beat tumultuously. My knees trembled, my lips quivered, and I felt as though I must fall to the ground. I mean, can you imagine that? Seven preachers preaching at the same tr- time, standing up on soapboxes or stumps and, and yelling. I mean, you had, you had people that uh, running around on all fours, barking like a dog, just doing all sorts of weird things. This is a revival period, a lot of excitement. People are trying to drive people to these events. It, it was the, the thing to do to, to try to find Jesus. It's kind of a crazy time. So, just to share one scripture, and we'll dive into this first vision. Doctrine and Covenants 113, it, Joseph Smith says, Therefore, my dearly beloved brethren, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power, and then may we stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God for his arm to be revealed. And that's one thing we're going to see about this revelation, this first vision, this this great experience is there was a lot that happened where Joseph Smith was doing everything he could in his power to get to where he could before God would step in and unveil himself to him in that grove. And a lot of times I think we focus on, you know, Joseph Smith said a prayer and God all of a sudden appeared and answered him. 
So if I pray about the Book of Mormon, why wouldn't God just come and tell me, or why won't I hear a voice instantly telling me that the Book of Mormon is true? And what we don't realize is the amount of effort and time that actually passed in this process. I think it, I think uh, to that point, it was kind of always um, it was always kind of weird for me, you know, while serving a mission that we we would kind of talk about the first vision. It was that was always that or that always kind of ended up being the theme of it, which is just like, Hey, like, uh, you know, this 14 year old boy prayed and, and in answer to his prayer, God spoke to him. It's funny. Cause I feel like it's kind of the wrong message. You know what I mean? Especially yeah. when, when, when talking with people that are, that are learning how to pray for the first time, it's like a funny thing to be like, it's kind of a weird setup, right? Yeah, you set the like, bar pretty high. Yeah, I'm just like, yeah, I'm just like, just for for the record, I've God's never come down and told me anything. You know what I mean? Like at least in person, you know, when I've prayed. But it's funny because like the the whole point of that message should be, oh hey, by the way, like God has restored the church on the earth, right? It's like it's the highlight of the story. Should definitely not be, hey, a 14 year old kid prayed and God spoke, you know, or God came down to him, right? Because that's like you said, it's like all of the factors that had to take place beforehand to make that happen, you know what I mean, are probably not going to happen to anybody, you know. But the the biggest thing that we need to learn from it is, hey, luckily this kid put in the preparation and the work and was worthy and was called. And because of that, the highlight is, oh, and by the way, the church has been restored. God's church has been restored. It's been restored. And he does answer prayers. We, we Exactly. We've got to put in our work, though. It's not something that you can expect that all of a sudden the heavens are going to open, a beam of light's not going to come down, all the angels aren't going to be singing praise to you. Are are, are you the one restoring the church? I mean, it, this is a pretty glorious event. And, and I don't know, it does set the bar pretty high. Like you say, I don't know if the message is you should expect all of heavens to move out of their way and all of a sudden accommodate you because you said a prayer once. Yes. There's, there's, more, there's more going on here than just that. But to be fair, I will say, you know, when I, when I first prayed to find out if, if the Book of Mormon was true, my, my experience wasn't, wasn't like Joseph Smith's kind of your, your, your point, right? For, for me, it was more of a, in my mind, just, you know, you've, you've always known it to be true. It's just, just kind of a, a very subtle confirmation, almost kind of disappointing in my mind of what I was, was expecting versus sure. what I got. But I did see, um, I did see a prayer answered, which was a really cool experience in, in kind of a big way. Joseph Smith told this account uh, I, I think there's four different written records that, that that we have on the church website that you can look at, and and all the records. He talks about this process starting when he's 11, 12 years old, and going all the way up until where he's in his 15th year, or even maybe his 16th year. You're talking about three or four years of him doing everything he can to figure out which church it is. And what's driving this desire is he feels like he himself is has, has sinned or is not worthy, or he wants to know where he stands before God. It's his, his kind of his personal worthiness issue that he's dying to know, am I saved? Am I good enough? What, what's, what's the fate of my soul? What do I need to do? And, and this question drives him to attend as many meetings as possible, as it says in Joseph Smith history. Can you imagine that? A 12-year-old boy saying, Mom, can you take me to this church now? Can you take me to this church? A lot of, a lot of our 11, 12-year-old boys, 
can't wait to get home from staggering meeting or you know throw off the tie and change the clothes and be done for the day. Wait, Eleven or twelve year old boys are pretty much all of us. <laughs> I'm just we're gonna be we're gonna be honest here. Yeah. Well, that dedication to him to attend not just a meeting but as many different meetings as occasion would permit, as he says it. To try to to sort this out in his mind and find the truth, it wasn't just a single prayer. It was this journey. And, and the word that he uses in Joseph Smith history, he says, after he had labored, right? This word that we associate with, with childbirth or, you know, hard labor. Or, he had labored under these circumstances for several years. He's turning to the scriptures. He's attending as many different religions. He's thinking it out. He's asking questions. He's really just diving into this. How many of you guys... Or, or Nate, you know, do you have experience where you've asked a question where it's just driven you to the point where you ask that same question for four years? And well, I, <laughs> no, I'm just say, I, I'm too impatient. I mean, I'm just going to be, you know. Well, especially in this day and age when we've got cell phones, and if we have a question, we pull it out and 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 we search it up, and you know, within a matter of minutes, we have the answer to our question. Exactly. I, I think we're so far removed from that time when, I mean, we talked about this in our last episode, but communication taking weeks at a time to find out what happened or what's going over on the other side of the sea. You you waited for things, and, and this was a process that he was willing to devote himself to and and really just test out over over years. And the cool thing is, when he decides to pray, it's not just, okay, I'm going to go pray right now, Right? He didn't, he didn't just kneel down all of a sudden wherever he was standing next to his bed and kneel down and pray and ask God, is this true? But he says he retired to the place where he had previously designated, right? He planned this prayer out. He, he didn't just say, oh, this is a, bl- a lovely spot. I'm going to kneel down and pray right here. No, he said, this is a lovely spot. I'm going to come back and pray here when I'm ready. I'm going to prepare myself for this prayer, and I'm going to really ask God what, what's been on my mind for these last several years what do you, you what are your thoughts over there nate i mean i i, I my mind kind of just goes back to what you've already said which is and and again like i always i always looked at this stuff to kind of relate to you know to me personally or to to us you know like i try to i try to do that with all this stuff and and again it is it it always kind of comes back to what are we willing to do to receive an answer to something or even you know when i've when i try to prepare lessons for you know whatever meeting i'm i've i'm in charge of teaching or something like that um you know i always strive to have kind of a you know a profound personal experience and connection with whatever that lesson is and and do i you know obviously do i do i try to find time to set aside you know other distractions and kind of get to it and then when you look at you know the maturity of, of of a 14 year old who had you know um who had literally planned hey for for years it says and then is as designated a place to pray and to put that work in um i'm just saying like there's there's a reason that that joseph smith in my you know in my belief was was called because it takes kind of a special person to be able to be that disciplined at that at that age when I have a hard time doing it, you know, at my age. Yeah. When I, I go back to the parable of the, the virgins with the, the lamps, right? The oil that we put into it. Yeah. And I look at the, the focus, the dedication that, 
you know, Newton put into getting to the point where he saw and understood everything that was going to happen. Not that he was a prophet, not that he was Isaiah, but yet he still had a firm grasp on those situations. And, and the time and the dedication, the focus, the energy that Joseph Smith put into getting this answer. And a lot of thing, a lot of times we oversimplify this this restoration process. That, you know, Joseph Smith prayed, and God came and told him not to join the church, and and then an angel came and showed him where the plates were, and it, you know, this whole thing just kind of rolls out. But we we skip over the the years and and the the well, stress centuries really. Of well, like, true. Of like preparing the earth for it. I'm just saying, it's like if you want to, I mean, if you want to talk about oversimplification. I'm just saying it took so many inspired people along the way to even to even start the process of, you know, I mean, even reorganizing the writings of the church to be at least some some sort of guide, you know, to get started to have a belief in in Christ, and then at that point to, you know, to make it so that anybody could read the scriptures and not just you know clergy. I mean, I mean, and even that's just oversimplifying again the idea Absolutely. of centuries that it took to even to even prepare the earth, not just for a young man to prepare himself. Oh, I mean, I mean, we could really we could have a whole podcast just on that. I mean, you talk about the the Mayflower, where it landed. They they were off course. They they were hundreds of miles away from where they should have been, but where they showed up was was cleared land ready for them to go with springs of fresh water because the 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 native american inhabitants that lived there before all all got sick died of infirmity and everybody else all the all the other all the other inhabitants here of the continent didn't even want to touch that area because they were so afraid that they would get sick and die too so so you've got this area with the the the, the ground is ready you've got freshwater springs it's been cleared it's ready for farming someone had already gone in and done the work for them like yeah just all sorts of things happening to make this thing come come about, right? Well, going back to Joseph Smith, you know, not only does he have the couple years of preparation that he puts into this, he finally has this prayer. He has this really awesome experience. He sees, well, first he's almost overcome by by the adversary. Oh yeah, I've seen the church movie. There was there was a clock sound that went like pew, <laughs> right? That's that's the one. That's pretty intense too. Oh yeah, that church movie. We had to stop showing that to everybody. <laughs> Everybody's too freaked out about that whole thing. And again, I mean, I don't. I mean, it is kind of freaky. But usually, when you're trying to when you're trying to convince people that we're not just the weirdest people in the world, maybe not the best video to show them. <laughs> but I'm, uh, I'm sorry, church. <laughs> I'm sorry, church, for that video, for hating that video. I mean, I kind of like it, but yeah, but it wasn't it was an intense experience, right? Before he before the the light comes down, he has. He, he has this this struggle with a, an unseen power, but a very real power. And and really, I, so many times we talk about Satan in the abstract, or the devil, or the adversary, or you know, this abstract concept. But but really, this first vision account makes it very tangible, very real. There 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 is something there that that which not just something in our imagination, but but there isn't a force that as much as God has been working to try to to bring this about, to try to prepare the world for the coming of his son, there's something there that's been trying to stop it as well that that we fight with, that we that we need to be willing to to push past or to to reach out to God to deliver us from that, to you know, find that energy to to persevere to make it through at the end. 
and the heavens open and and he sees God the Father. He sees you know his Son Jesus Christ, and and he learns some things for himself. He learns that that he he is have a good standing before God. That his sins have been forgiven, and that was the one thing that was just driving him crazy to find out. But also that that the God's church wasn't there, and and so you you might ask, okay, well where is it? What what do I need to do? And and God. It's not like he answered the question, right? And sometimes that's the question we ask. We ask and we expect a straight answer from God, like, what church should I join? And God says, well, don't, don't join any of them yet. And you're like, oh, well, what do you mean? You know, you know, is there not some more questions there? Like, uh, are you saying, is, is there another church that's going to happen? Or, you know, I, I, God's not telling Joseph Smith at this point, hey, I need you to bring this church back to the earth. It's it's kind of open ended. Just I don't want you to join any of them yet, and that, that's not really what you're expecting God to answer. Have you ever, have you ever had a prayer and you're expecting something like God's going to tell you here is my church, or you can join any of them, or it doesn't really matter. But God says, you know what? I don't want you joining any church. That just doesn't seem like an answer God would be giving. But he he answers him. He he's he's drained. He comes back home to his mom and he tells her, you know, I've learned for myself that the the Methodist church isn't correct because that was the way she was leaning and they were thinking and whatever else. But he's he's really tested his hypothesis that he thought maybe this church would get him there. He asks God and he and he learns for himself there's something else going on. And his family had been being prepared to accept this, by the way, too. Absolutely. Like his 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 mom's desire for God and and her her commitment to trying to become closer to God. A lot of this again, like I think, kind of keeps coming back to people being prepared, even if they didn't realize they were being prepared for something. Yeah. I mean, his family were the only people that believed him at first. You know, I mean, that's the, to the, not the, just reject them outright, exactly. like all the other people. You know, exactly. You're, you're crazy. You know, you saw God. What? Why? Why? Why did God talk to you and sure. and not to the reverend down the street? Yep. Yeah, there's a lot of faith and a lot of trust and a lot of preparation that went into this. Then it's pretty. It's pretty neat that that here this experience is happening in a in a sacred grove. The grove has played a, a prominent role throughout history in the church, and and to show you what I mean, you go back to Abraham, and. When the Lord appears to him, and the name of the place, uh, Mamre, the M-A-M-R-E, is he's sitting here. It's a grove. He's He's gone to this grove. He's built an altar. He's worshiping the Lord in this grove, and he's dwelling in this grove. And God appears to Abraham in a grove and establishes his covenant with him. Not only does he establish a grove with Abraham, I mean, and, and this happens several times in Genesis. You see the story of, of Abraham, he plants a grove and then builds an altar and worships God somewhere else. Then he seeks a grove among the land of the Canaanites. This idea that the grove was associated with God, it's, it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting idea. And it gets a bad rap because after the temple is established, the people are told not to be building their groves anymore. And they tear down the groves and they tear down the high places. So the groves is oftentimes associated with apostasy and these people that are worshiping false idols or false gods in all of these groves. But before it was a symbol of apostasy, it was a place where people could find God when there was no temple here on earth. And, you know, to, to show you that point a little bit more, think about Moses 
before he delivered Israel out of Egypt. And, you know, Joseph Smith being somewhat of a a modern-day Moses that is restoring Israel, where did God appear to Moses before he called him to, to redeem his people? You know, you got the burning bush. And you've, you've got, you know, the palm branches that are laid before Christ when he enters triumphantly into, into Jerusalem. When he goes to, to start the atonement, that the night before he dies, he's in a grove of trees in the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, ultimately, when he's hung on a cross, it's almost like a grove of trees. He's, as the New Testament says, he was hung on a tree. He, he was almost as if the, the center of a grove or the, a body hanging on a cross. And all of this harks back to the Garden of Eden when God walked on the face of the earth with man. It was in a grove of trees in the Garden of Eden in the center of which he had the tree of life. So this imagery, this, this, this powerful idea or notion of these trees and, and finding God in the trees existed as a, a, a place of worship before a temple was was built on the earth. And then as you see the temple show up in Israel and the religion centralized, now now you didn't have all of these offshoots and individual people going and worshiping in trees because that that, that was pulling away from your your church, your centralized uh, worship that, that, that started people down the path of apostasy. But in Joseph Smith's day, when you're you're in an age of apostasy and there is no temple for the Son of Man to come to, there is no place to worship, here you have him going back to a grove, just, just like the ancient patriarchs did, and having an experience very similar there, showing really that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think there's a lot of symbolism there, too, like the idea of, of, of the tree and like of the, you know, obviously of like the process and life cycle of a tree. And, you know, it, it is interesting because like when Joseph Smith goes into the grove, he's just he's just like a young small branch, you know what I mean, that that luckily is taking strong roots, but at the same time it's like he's he's not at that point ready for the weight of what eventually he's going to need to be ready for, right? And and when when he has his you know, his first vision, he doesn't get he doesn't get burdened with the weight that could have broken the small, you know what I mean, like the small sapling or whatever and as as he as the tree begins to um be nourished and and fed eventually line upon line he's kind of he it's revealed to him the weight that he is going to have to be able to bear you know and 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 what what the what the full extent of that calling is actually going to be i love that and i love the imagery Really, it's a, a dual. In one instance, you have the tree representing the tree of life or Christ, right? An image of the Savior. But then at the other side, you know, you've got the allegory of the olive tree where you're cutting these branches and relocating them all over the place. And, and this imagery, this tree is, is no longer the Savior. It's us. It's Israel. It's scattered or, or this represents us. Isaiah 53, you've got this. He grew up as a tender root, as this plant, as this, this sprout that's growing up out of the ground and is referring to Christ. But, but at the same time, it's, it's referring to us. And this thing is, is Christ is the sheep or Christ is the shepherd, but we're the sheep, but we're also expected to be the shepherd. This idea that, that really God, Christ, is becoming us 
so that we might become him in this dual symbolism where these images are used to describe him or to worship him, but he's not afraid to turn that back around and say, really, this is you. you you're the same stock. We're the same together, and I am going to bring you to be just like me. And what better place to illustrate that than, you know, this grove of trees, as you've, as you've expressed this imagery of Joseph Smith as the sapling, you know, it's powerful. Very powerful imagery. I love it. Thanks for tuning in this week as we, we discuss the start of Joseph Smith history. The next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about after the, the first vision, we start talking about Moroni and the plates and, and how that comes into play, and we'll, we'll dive a little bit more into the restoration. Until next time, see ya. See ya.